This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, Stefan Berko, lawyer and advocate with Deserve Foundation in Ukraine, helps us understand from Kyiv how Ukrainians are preparing for the possibility of winter with less or no heat and electricity because of the war and about Russia purchasing military hardware from North Korea and how that could be good news. Scott Latham, associate professor, Manning School of Business at UMass Lowell, on what it takes to get into a startup and how it can be done without cutting corners. If you have a little side hustle on your mind, this is going to give you some answers of what you need to know. Plus, Handy Andy Barrar on getting rid of spiders, cobwebs, and all the bugs in your house. Plus, some back-to-school technology that could change your world. And frankly, if you like the photos, we got to save them. He has some advice for you. This is the Shift Podcast. Okay, so um, because Duncan is here filling in for Ryan O'Donnell, uh, Handy Andy Barrar, the Disco Dancer song, let us it's been a while since we've talked about it. Let's reintroduce why that particular song matters to you because, you know, Duncan's here. He's not the only one that may not understand why that song is so important. Sure. Um, so, you, Shane, you gave me the nickname Disco Andy. Mm-hmm. And uh, one day... I was telling you a story about how when I was about four years old, I used to listen to this or watch this movie called Disco Dancer. It's a Hindi movie. And the main song was I Am a Disco Dancer. It's about this like boy in a village whose dream is to to be a disco dancer. And then he finally makes his dream come true and he's dancing in these discos. Anyways, I love that song as a kid. And then I think Brendan found it. And we were playing it on the show, and then one thing left to another, it became the theme song. So uh, that song is going to be part of me for forever. And then not soon after that we played that, the actual composer passed away. So mm-hmm. I'm just glad that we made it my theme song before he passed away. So that that was kind of a special little tribute to him and this song that I loved since I was uh, four years old. So handy, Andy, a uh, little childhood dream memory stuff coming true right there. It's pretty cool. Uh, thanks for being here. Happy long weekend to you, Andy. I know you've already posted your videos up at shiftheads.ca. I do invite everybody to go to handyandymedia.com or follow his YouTube channel, which you can link to from uh, the shiftheads.ca or from his website as well, because that's where all the videos really do come from. Where do you want to get started? I noticed a lot of pictures of people posting about those uh, big daddy long legs uh, spiders being around. Someone asked this question on Facebook was like, how did it get in my house? And my thought was probably walked, but that reason wasn't the answer that they were looking for. And I've noticed a few of them outside. The bugs are very active right now. The bees are like sleeping on my flowers. They're so drunk. The flies are stupid. They'll like land on your hand and not fly away. Mm-hmm. Um, the bugs are all over the flowers trying to get that last meal in, I think, before they pack it in so is that what we're seeing we're starting to see some of these uh bugs start to get ready for the fall well like you i've been seeing a lot of different house spiders in my home and there was something that someone told me a recommendation and it put me down a a a deep uh rabbit hole shane somebody told me though if you want to get rid of spiders you take a walnut or a chestnut and you put it into the corners of your home where the spiders usually come and then they, they they won't go to that area and I could never understand how that works, the mechanism of how this works. 
Mm-hmm. So I started, I jumped on the internet and did this uh, big deep dive. And it seems to be an old wives tale, but there really is no truth to it because a lot of people will say, put a chestnut on the windowsill to prevent the spiders from getting in your house. But after doing a lot of research, Shane, house spiders don't go from outside into your home. They've been inside your home from birth. They, they actually mm. start in these little tiny egg sacs. So if you're moving in furniture or other kind of material, they're in that egg sac and then they actually are born inside your house. They never actually were outside and house spiders have adapted to indoor climates and they've been around. Some species of house spiders have been around since the Roman times. Hmm. So I didn't know this. I thought they were coming from outside as well, but they've been inside your house. And so when you see a spider, typically it's in August and September. So if you see one, that's that's their mating season. So what you're seeing is Ooh. a male spider on the prowl who's looking, looking for, for a, a date. date. Yeah. So um, very, very interesting um, things about house spiders. I didn't know. And um, the fact that they can adapt, you know, for Canadian indoor, you know, Canadian homes is is pretty remarkable because they did come from Europe originally. Uh, yeah, I don't ever want to talk about spider baby sacks again because that just gives me the heebie-jeebies to say um, although I, the whole walnut thing, it's like, really like, I can't, I had spiders in my house and now I have squirrels. I can't figure out why I'll yeah, stop putting I, nuts in the corner. I, I, you know, even my parents started using it. And then I was like, you know, me being the skeptic, I'm like, I don't get it. How does it? And a lot of people say, oh, you got to put the spray. Spiders don't like this smell. The thing about spiders is they don't actually like have like a they don't have a scent like we do. It's from touch. It's when their legs touch something. That's how they smell. So there are people that say you use peppermint or eucalyptus oils mm-hmm. to try to uh, get them away, but that's when they actually touch it. So really, if you do have spiders, the the best way is there's a couple of ways. One is to just vacuum them up. Uh, or you could get a, a piece, a cup or a piece of paper, put it on there, and then take them outside, even though they're not. He's made probably going to gonna die right away. Yeah, oh, exactly. that's funny. That's what you've done. You've actually just ruined that. There was, I was when I was at my uh, my uh, event this summer. There was a spider in one of the halls where we were doing our classes, and this lady went and grabbed the cup and did the paper thing, like you said, and ran the spider outside. She might have actually just sentenced it to death because it's never lived outside. Oh. It, it, Exactly. You, you know, this whole you time think you're we saving thought, them. We, we thought that we're saving them, but we're actually just throwing them into an environment that they are not able to survive in. So, you know, things you things you learn about the Internet and it all happened just because I was seeing spiders and you know how you'll see cobwebs all around your home as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, getting rid of that is is really hard. What I used to do is I would grab my broom. And I try to collect it, but then the cobwebs get all over your broom and then you can't Mm -hmm. clean your broom. It just used to drive me crazy. So a good tip that I have for people, if you got these cobwebs all over up in the ceiling in the corners, a good tip is you take any kind of stick. You can even take your broom and flip it around. Just use the stick end, put a sock on there and then use that to collect all of your cobwebs. And then you could throw that sock in into the wash. That seems to be one of the easiest ways, because if you get it on your broom, it is to Shane, I'm telling you, it's next to impossible to get those cobwebs off the broom. Then you got to get your vacuum and then you're mm-hmm. vacuuming your broom and it just gets a mess. The best way that I can find is to use a, a sock on, on a stick, an old fashioned, you know, mm-hmm. simple way. It's a great uh, idea. It, it, and it works really well. I found that on the internet too. So I'm always, I'm always about sharing these handy tips, especially uh, they can help you when you're in a squeeze. 
Well, I find that um, at this time of year too, it is different, right? Like the um, the bugs are kind of stupid, and my sunflowers just got invaded by bugs. These little, I took a the one sunflower was really good, and so I cut it. It was the only one I cut. And I was going to put it in some flowers and bring it in the house, but it was filled with these tiny little mites that were just tiny like a speck. Yeah. And uh, as soon as I kind of moved it around, all of a sudden these little dots started moving on the flower. I'm like, well, this thing's going back outside. Like, I have no idea what those were, but I, I thought, can you imagine if somehow those got in my house? They're not even as big as a speck of dust. Yeah, and that's the problem. If A lot of people, they try to grow things outside, and then they'll try to bring it inside your home. You're bringing an entire ecosystem of bugs yeah. that have been living outside on those plants, and then bring them inside. So, that's something to be to me mindful of. Like, and you mentioned sunflowers. I spent the whole long weekend because I grew these giant. They're like they're called Russian mammoth. They grow like mm-hmm. over 14 tall. They got these huge heads. And Shane, the the mistake I made is I'm like, cool, these 10 foot tall sunflowers, but the head is so heavy. The thing is just hanging over. It looks so depressed. Yeah. Yeah. So I have to figure out a way to like, you know, keep it erect, but it, they're so heavy. I think next time I'm going to have to tie it to a fence post or something like that to keep them up because, uh, you know, what's the point of having this giant sunflower if it's hanging over because it can't yeah, handle the I did the, the dwarf ones. I found the dwarf ones to be, um, to be pretty awesome because they only, they're like two feet tall. So, but they still get too heavy for the stock though. And they they do end up drooping when they get really big, but they're they're tough buggers though. They um, you know they there was one that the typically they would grow up right like a sunflower just grows up one stalk whatever, but they would start to grow out sideways and they would break because they're too heavy on the branch and yeah. there's a tiny little bit connected only and they're still growing. They were not giving up. Yeah, it, the, the resiliency of, of plants is amazing because I've noticed that too. Some of them they'll get heavy and they kind of go laterally like sideways. And then all of a sudden they'll kind of come up again. So I had a, it was really interesting. Like I grew maybe 10 of these giant ones and taking them down to chain. It's like taking, cutting a tree. Mm -hmm. I had to get like a sawzall. I had to cut it down. I took, now I have these like giant stalks. So I went on Google. I'm like, what what can you do with these sunflower stalks? Mm -hmm. Turns out they make great for bean poles. If you want to grow beans. You just mm. need a giant pole so you could use, I'm going to, so I'm keeping all of them. I'm going to dry them up and I think I'm going to try to make like trellises with them. Like oh, that's go super, go super old school with these uh, sunflowers. But like, I think a lot of people were growing them this year because of Ukraine. So I, I wanted to, um, you know, support that way as well. But I want to keep those stalks because they, they're so big. They're over 10 feet long now. It, it would it feels bad to you know not well you use might it. be able to tie them together old school style with some hemp string or something and yeah yeah they, you can make they're called like little a frames if you're growing yeah. like peas and beans and stuff so I'd like to do that for the community garden that I have uh, next year so try to get some creative uh, you know DIY trellis making using uh, sunflower stalks 877-399-9898 that's our phone number here it's the shift and um andy we were just talking about sunflowers and and how droopy your sunflowers are because they're too heavy well um text from um uh sorry i don't have a name it says i have a customer that grows sunflowers around a tree and then uses string to keep them upright great mm-hmm. idea yeah but the, the mistake i made is now i was thinking about it I'm going to plant them exactly where there's a fence post nearby so that I can tie it to that. Cause I could, they're so big. I couldn't find anything that was strong enough that I could tie it to. So I can't right. just like arbitrarily say, Oh, I'm going to, I want a sunflower here or there. I have to look for a structure 
to be able to tie it. That was the mistake I made. But that's the thing about gardening. You know, you, 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 you experiment, you learn, and then the next year you can do it again. And hopefully you get better and better each year. Uh, it is cool stuff. Now, we were talking about get back to school. Where are we going and what do we need? Because your photo looks pretty techy. Yeah. So first thing I want to talk about is, and this is what people don't think about when it's back to school. You've just finished summer. You got your iPhone. You've taken all these pictures on your family vacations and, and whatnot. The first thing you want to do is empty your phone because you have a new school year. You're going to be taking a lot of photos and, and videos. So there's a really easy way for iPhone users to back up your iPhone without the use of iCloud. And what you're going to need is this little tiny gadget from SanDisk. It's called the iExpand Flash. It's like one of those USB thumb drives, except it has a lightning port on one end. So you put it into your iPhone. It works with an app. You pick all the files inside of your phone that you want to move, say your pictures and your videos. And then you move it all physically onto this little hard drive that's on your phone. Then you flip it, and then it has a USB-A slot, which you then connect into your laptop. And then really, you grab all those files and drag it over. And the great thing about this is you don't have to use iCloud, so you can save a lot of money that way. It's only about $55, and you get 128 gigs of storage. So if anybody wants this, whether you're going to back to school or not, I know a lot of people have a full iPhone. They want to move that data. Just go to my website, Handy Andy Media. Go to my back to school tech blog and you'll see a link right on the top. That's uh, the first and most essential thing I think for people is to clear your phone. It's exactly what my son says, right? Like we talked about this paperless world and all the stuff we're going to sa save these days. But the reality is, is what they didn't tell us is that instead of printing your stuff and keeping it in a file folder, old photos or whatever, you're going to have hard drives and even hard drives expire after time. And they, you have to check them. They have to make sure that then you got to move it to a new hard drive. So we've all committed now to move off of printed. This is the Enviro thing that gets me. We've all agreed because we are going to move off the printed paper, but instead we have all of these precious metals that are on all these hard drives and storage that constantly need to be updated for the rest of time or yeah. We pay for Google Drive or iCloud or whatever for the till the end of time. You're paying rent to store it. So we really got snowed in this whole idea. Yeah. And so the, the, the solution really is to try to merge both of those worlds because, of course, they say you want to back things onto a hard drive, but you also want that cloud connectivity. And one of the good solutions is to set up what's called a network attached storage, a NAS device. It's really just like this like server that you connect to your router and then you can get access to it remotely on an app, say on your phone, to all your files. So it's kind of like having your own personal cloud, except you're not paying a monthly fee like you are with iCloud or with Google. It's your own hard drive, but you still get that cloud connectivity. But regardless, even if you do that, you have to do what's called redundancy and back those files up, put it maybe in your safety deposit box, Could because you're right. We used to have photo albums and now everything's going to be on hard drives and then you got to keep it up because my original Napster music collection from like when Napster was out back in the day, I still have it, but it's all on DVDs and I don't even mm -hmm. have a DVD uh, player in a computer That's to right. be able to access those original files. So you're 100% right about that. But, you know, one thing I do try to tell people is stop paying for the subscription service for the cloud, you know, just back everything onto a hard drive put that away for safekeeping and like you mentioned every couple of years you're going to have to migrate all that into the next 
you know, hard drive storage that we have in the next five, 10 years. But that that's the way that we kind of live right now. And, you well, know, you lose those hard drives, you're going to lose all of those memories, thousands and well, thousands we don't of even, photos. Exactly. But we don't even go through them and call off the ones that are, you know, the pictures of our foot because we, right, we save everything. So then it, it, the cost exponentially grows from there anyway. Yeah. So one way or another, we're, we're, we're going to get screwed, screwed. over. So yeah. Uh, well, we bought into this thing that it was better for the environment to not use paper, but you can't convince me that all these hard drives that we're going to be having around are going to be better. Like in the big picture of imagine all the hard drives over all the years, you know, at least paper breaks down. Well, so I, even, I find, find I, it weird. I think about this about servers, you know, like we talk about the cloud, like they're just going to keep adding servers and servers, servers. And more just, electricity. But look at Amazon web services, like the entire internet is just living on servers and, and yep. it's just getting bigger and bigger to the point that we have server farms, entire farms just full mm -hmm. of hard drives. It's just mind boggling the amount of data that we use and the amount of data that's growing each each year on the internet, like daily, well, every second. Daily, every second. And then you get into Bitcoin and all these uh, cryptocurrencies that the algorithms it takes to create those, those coins, I mean, it's so bad for the amount of power that it uses as well. So, some of the companies say that we're trying to go green on the power because they can do that where they are. Maybe they're in the desert and they've got a bunch of sunshine. But the reality is, is that there's, I, there's no way this can be better. Yeah. Like, I mean, I guess the, the volume increase is so huge that we can't even tell the difference anymore. That's just, I guess, what it boils down to. Well, uh, make sure you go check it all out. All of these things are there. It's so important for you, whether they're uh, uh, school ideas, gift ideas for yourself or whatever. The reality is, is that we need to take a good hard look at how are you backing it up? Don't lose your stuff because you don't want to. Um, it'll be gone forever, like literally gone forever. We always used to be worried about a fire with our photo albums. This is this is like that without the fire. So thanks for being here, bud. My pleasure. This is the Shift Podcast. Okay, so the war in Ukraine continues to roll on. There's been some interesting um, events that have unfolded. We have not spoken with Stepan Berko in a little while. Uh, I was away, and everything else that's unfolded, so I'm, I'm very excited to hear how he's doing. Stepan, are you there? Yes, Shane. It's nice to hear you. It is nice to hear your voice. Um, all the way from Kiev, Ukraine, uh, Stepan uh, works in law advocacy and so much more, and um, and it has been a couple of weeks. I can tell you, Stepan, that I remember when I texted you that picture of the sunflowers on my front step that I had grown. Um, I got up to fifteen, actually, uh, but here in Canada, the sun is starting to get That's a little cool. bit. That's cool. Temperatures a little bit cooler, and 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 so off go the flowers. So it was a really nice touch. I invite everybody in your own way to do something to keep the Ukraine conversation uh, alive and in front of uh, what you're going to. I still see an awful lot of houses with the blue and the gold lights on them to keep the conversation going. How are you doing, Stepan? It's uh, the end of summer now. Um, you were lucky enough to have your family with you through the course of the summer. Um, how are you doing and how are things? Uh, I'm doing... Uh okay uh you know uh com you know considering the circumstances so having my job uh my kid just yesterday went to his kindergarten uh, and in kiev for the last few weeks it was more calm than 
usually we did, we weren't that much disturbed by the missiles but uh, you know everyday news from the front lines and especially from the area of the nuclear power plant that disturbs everyone so mm-hmm. uh, Despite this news, everybody is trying to live their lives, but still worrying about the, what's going on. This conversation around as fall starts to come and winter is not very far away, Stepan, is, has that entered the dialogue yet? I mean, we're still a lot of conversation about harvest and grain and all of that, but I'm just curious because I'm not familiar with what fall looks like in Ukraine in general. Um the cold is probably going to, because this war so far, it, I mean, it was cold in February, March, but it wasn't terrible. So has that, has that started to, to wonder what this looks like if it continues much longer? Oh, yes. The government uh, started communicating to, to the public that uh, the temperatures in our houses uh, this winter will be much lower. So uh, everybody has to prepare themselves um, with some alternatives. There might be some problems with uh, electricity and gas because we don't know. Actually, we know that Russians will try to uh, shoot our uh, critical infrastructure. Uh, So, yeah, this is pretty much uh, one of the uh, top topics. uh, you know, circulating in, in uh, between people, how to prepare for winter, what to do if uh, uh, we don't have, uh, you know, heat in our homes or electricity. Uh, th- this is pretty much a, a thing that disturbs everyone. But um, I would say that people, despite conversating uh, on this topic, people are optimistic and, uh, you know, here in Kiev at least, and hoping that... Uh, Despite everything, we'll we'll manage to live through this winter and fall. How do you uh, how do you plan on dealing with that at home or at work? I mean, do you have wood stoves? I mean, is what's the conversation like um, with you and your your circle of your family and friends to to stay warm in the winter? What do you have to planning to do? Because I mean, all across Europe, I mean, there's all kinds of changes coming to energy because of Russia. So right in Ukraine, where it's most vulnerable to literally be stopped, uh, what, what do you plan for? Uh, I live in an apartment building, so there's not much I can do with in case I, we don't have electricity or, or uh, gas. So my option is uh, if things get worse and worse, we'll probably move to my parents in Viv because they have their private house with a uh, uh, wooden with a with a stove where you can you know fire wood, um, and some other people they're also thinking about uh, moving to some villages where it's uh, easier to uh, you know to 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 heat the house with wood, uh, but mm. everybody hopes that you know the government and local government also will manage to uh, fix all the all the issues that might appear. Uh, in, 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 in short terms. So, yeah, not, hmm. not much you can do if you live in a big city, but uh, rather uh, if you live in the village, yeah, then you mm-hmm. can do something yourself, prepare w- wood and stuff. 
as we get into fall, my kids are also going back or went back to school last week. You mentioned your child is uh, going into kindergarten the first time. I, I, you know, as a dad, that must feel amazing, especially considering that a few months ago, um, your family wasn't even with you. They were out of the country. And then, you know, sort of fast forward, uh, to, to more questions about what does school look like? So, you know, if you can put your dad hat on for just one sec for me, Stefan, um, there was probably times where you and your wife had said, we're not sure if, you know, he's going to school. What do we do? And uh, But then for you, you've been lucky enough to get that started. So what what does that look like as a dad for you? This is not his first year in kindergarten, uh, but mm-hmm. this is like the first day of a new uh, year in the kindergarten. We, we had this uh, in May when we returned to Kiev, and we had this option to let him go to the kindergarten. And it was... Uh, it was tough because you know that uh, there might be an air siren and you're staying in your house or in office and you know that your child is somewhere else with some other people and you just hope that they are safe. Uh, I mean, we, we checked whether our kindergarten had uh, like a safe uh, basement and luckily they do. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough decision to let your child uh, in, in such circumstances uh, being somewhere else uh, and you just uh, hope that those uh, uh, wonderful people who work in the kindergarten that they take care of uh, all and every child and that they also because it's you know for kil- children it's also uh, psychologically tough because they're away mm-hmm. uh, of their parents and they're, they they also hear these sirens and they know that this uh, might be dangerous so uh, I think uh, Ukrainian children also somehow uh, got to used to, to this situation. Uh, I don't know if it's yeah. good or bad, uh, but we, we somehow managed to live w- with this. Well, when they grow up, they're going to be tough kids. There's no denying that. Um, school in general, though, has been really hard. And some of our conversations here asking questions about you know, what does school look like for a lot of kids? I mean, here in Canada, of course, COVID had happened. So we had a couple of years of in school, out of school, homeschool, everything else. I mean, um, through family and friends and colleagues, uh, there's a lot of, there's a, this is a big gap when you add on the war and some kids who can't go to school. I mean, I, I'd asked the question last week of, of, um, of Hannah Shalis. I'd said, well, what about, you know, in places like Kherson and, and all of that where, you know, it's possible they could be not only not going to school, but the only option for school could be uh, a Russian curriculum that's getting you know installed there. So, what what are you hearing about school in general? Because that, to me, you know, that's protecting the future of Ukraine. I know that you guys advocate for the law, but really, when you're talking about the future of Ukraine, it's making sure the babies have a future too. Yeah, that's uh, a, a really important uh, issue that you have raised. Uh, I know that a huge number of schools is not prepared uh, for uh, having classes because they don't have bomb shelters and uh, our government uh, didn't allow such schools to, to open because, uh, you know, uh, this is not safe and parents don't want to let their kids uh, study somewhere where they're not safe. Uh, many uh, schools shifted to uh, um, having classes just in uh, some uh, industrial buildings where they have uh, huge basements. 
So they, from, from the very beginning, they having classes in uh, underground in, in these basements. Uh, and of course, uh, some kids will remain at home uh, with, uh, you know, having classes via Zoom or uh, other, um, uh, other means of communication uh, with their teachers. Uh, and uh, yeah, the, the news from the occupied territories worry us as well, because we see these videos uh, of uh, Russian occupying administration organizing these classes where they brainwash children uh, and they say that, uh, you know, this was always Russia. And uh, what is really interesting when you see videos from Russian TV, they say, uh, we had to uh, send thousands of Russian teachers to these occupied territories. Of, co of course, they don't say occupied, they say liberated mm -hmm. territories because uh, Ukrainian teachers, they don't want to uh, use our curricula and they don't want to uh, participate in this brainwashing. So on one hand, you cheer that uh, Ukrainian teachers, you know, they... they uh, those on the occupied territories, they're brave people and they understand that they don't want to, uh, you know, commit this crime against against these children and against their state. But on the other hand, this is a, a clear indicator of, uh, you know, uh, a genocide when you when when Russia is trying to uh, uh, exterminate any sign of of uh, Ukrainian uh influence or ukrainian state on these territories and they are not afraid of sending russian teachers russian soldiers uh russian whatever to 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 stick you know their flag on that territory and uh to uh, just make it make everything uh possible that people forget that they are ukrainian uh this is sad but uh you know some news from the front lines uh Oh, did I lose him? Did we lose him there for a sec? Double check. Stepan Berko joins us from Ukraine, and uh, every now and then, sometimes that connection drops. You never know with the with everything that's been going on about um, uh, with Ukraine. So, Stepan Berko um, was chatting about that. You were chatting about the curriculum. We just lost the last couple of words there, Stepan. Yeah, I say I was saying that the the, the latest news from the front lines they give us hope that. Uh, you know, the occupation of, of some territories, at least some territories, will end soon. And uh, that means that some other territories will also be liberated by, by, our, by our army and uh, that our children and our teachers will not have to suffer this uh, occupation administration. Mm -hmm. A big push in Kyrgyzstan right now, The um, you know, to a point where they were planning, a, a Russians were planning a referendum, uh, overconfident perhaps, uh, in the region, and with the pushback from Ukrainian forces trying to take all of the towns that they can and get into Kherson, it looks like that stuff has been delayed. Um, you know, again, it's that mixed emotion thing, right, Stefan? Like you, you've we've got this, we've got this, you know, pushback that's happening, which is a cause to celebrate the success, but at the same time, it should never have happened in the first place. So it's a little bit mixed emotion, but. You know, you have some family and friends that are have been on the front lines that have seen, you know, these things happen. Um, what is what do we need to know about that? Uh, first of all, uh, what our armed forces are saying, we don't have to have any high expectations because, uh, you know, in time in times of social media, uh, people often uh, 
people who are stressed because of war, they build these high expectations of, let's say, Kherson being liberated next week. And uh, of course, this is really tough thing to uh, counterattack, uh, especially uh, such uh, highly armed uh, Russian forces. So, yeah, the first the, the first thing people are saying is that we, we don't have to be overexcited about this. And, um, you know, what happened on the very first day when these news uh, uh, appeared about our counteroffensive is that on social media, so many people posted like, uh, you know, cheerful jokes uh, saying, yes, finally, we're uh, taking Kherson and, and, and this part of region back. And... Um, some some people who are in in military, their reaction was that uh, every uh, our every counteroffensive uh, comes with uh, lives of soldiers that will definitely die in these battles because uh, offensive operations are much more deadly than uh, defensive operations. So. Uh, it's it's like you're, you're having this situation that you cheer and you're happy with the success of our soldiers, but at the same time you know that it comes uh, with the price, a high, very high price of casualties on the front line. Um, yeah, and you just live with these mixed emotions uh, all, all, all the time and hope that uh, our uh, um, you know top military officers they make smart decisions and they. They don't sacrifice our soldiers uh, uh, for, for nothing. And um, I, I'm happy to, to, to see that uh, at least uh, these news that we're having, and we're having not much, uh, show that uh, Ukrainian armed forces are not you know, uh, throwing thousands of people just to take uh, some cities or villages. They're trying to stay smart uh, using as much... Uh, uh, you know, the tactical situation for their favor as possible, but not sacrificing people for nothing. Uh, one last question here, or a set of questions here, Stepan, before we go. Stepan Berko joins us from Kiev in Ukraine. News on the BBC talks about how um, Russia's expanding relations with North Korea, as North Korea seems to be supplying shells and uh, rockets and all of that, which, by the way, like, Quality control in North Korea is not that great, so that probably works in Ukraine's favor, but if anything is going to go wrong and blow up at the wrong time, um, that would also be an issue. Uh, so Russia is building that relationship, and then there's also talks that Iran is planning on giving drones and and more. So you used to say to me in the very beginning that Ukraine was fighting the world war for everybody on Ukrainian soil. That you The, the thing that we needed to remember as Canadians was that this this is Ukraine fighting for everybody's sovereignty, everybody's freedom. It just happens to be proxy through specifically your own. When you see stories like this, and not a surprise that you know the arms dealing has is stretching far and wide around the world. You know how how does that how does that land in the conversation? I this is one of those things where you probably didn't really want to be right about in the beginning, but you were. Hmm. The fact that Russia is buying ammunition from North Korea is a good sign because it means that they are uh, running low on their own ammunition. And that's good because uh, th this means that uh, we've managed to uh, uh, 
managed to 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 cut, cause this uh, uh, deficit of uh, ammunition on the Russian side, and that you know ev every day that they have to search for uh, new places like Iran and North Korea, that means that our victory day is closer and closer. Uh, of course, uh, this also uh, raises the question whether Ukraine has enough weapons and ammunition to fight back. And uh, what uh, Ukrainian military experts are saying, that it seems that the West and, uh, and the United States, especially since the United States is the biggest military donor of Ukraine, uh, their policy is to help Ukraine withstand the aggression, but not win the territory back because we don't have enough uh, armored vehicles, tanks, and uh, jets to, to fight back, to take back our territories. And we are not provided uh, with this. And it seems that we will not be provided with this in the near future. So this raises a question, what's the policy of the West? To help Ukraine not to collapse? Uh, or to help Ukraine win this war, uh, devastate Russian military and make sure that nothing like that happens, neither in Ukraine nor in any other European country or any other country. So it seems to me that uh, uh, our diplomats have to be more persuasive when they uh, talk to uh, Western diplomats. And uh, I, I, ho I think and I hope and I call for Western societies to... Um, push for their governments uh, to uh, uh, actually change this policy uh, to make sure that Ukraine has all the means uh, to take uh, uh, its land back and to liberate its people back and make sure that Russia is not aggressive anymore. Stepan Berko, uh is studies law and works for advocacy for uh, Ukrainian law and the future of Ukraine. How incredibly important is that? Um, building a democratic Ukraine and making it better all the time with his colleagues uh, from Kiev. Stepan, it's great to hear your voice. Really appreciate you taking the time to share with us, and I do look forward to connecting again soon. Thank you, Shane. And I just want to use this last minute to express my condolences to all the Canadians uh, because of these uh, horrific uh, stabbings that happened just recently. Uh, we Ukrainians, despite the war, also feel your pain, and we hope that uh, um, you, f you will find the, uh, the, the way to, to uh, investigate these uh, horrific, th horrific uh, things and to find your own peace. Uh, thank you, sir. That's very kind of you. Stay safe. Bye. This is The Shift Podcast. It is easy to get into a relationship, hard to get out of one. Easy to get into a job, hard to quit. It's easy to get into business and hard to get out of business. Our guest is here to help us understand if you want to do some of that side hustle, how do you get into it? What do you need to know? So here to share the business nerd of all business nerd things is Scott Latham. He's a PhD. He's got all things business. He's a business nerd. That's safe to say, Scott, just a flat out business nerd. Yeah, very fair. Very, very fair. So, All right. Uh, well, let's just start with the introduction of, of what you get up to and, and why this getting started in business startups and all these pieces matter to you. Yeah. So for me, I you know worked in the 90s and the O's in the software industry. 
saw the booms on the boss of the dot-com era, worked in several startups myself, one very successful, one not so successful. And then in uh, my mid-30s, basically said, you know what, this stuff fascinates me. And like you, uh, real passionate about it and just went off and got a PhD in business policy and strategy. Wow. Really focusing on, you know, my dissertation was on the companies that went through the dot-com bust and boom, uh, and then just kept with that. And then ended up at UMass Lowell in 2009, and I am a director at our medical life, a medical life, medical device and life science incubator, where we work with small startups on a day-to-day basis. So it's it's something that is inbred in me from my professional experience and to this day, it's just part of my DNA. And, and the same thing, Shane, why does one fail? Why does one not fail? And I like your characterization. It's easy to start a business. It is, it is so easy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's the breaking up that's hard to do. And I, I don't mean necessarily failing, it's just understanding that exit and you know, how you're gonna actually keep that relationship going. So yeah, great characterization. <laughs> I look forward to, to nerding out on this. And I'm, yeah. for anybody who's ever thought about um, the, you know, Shopify, right? Shopify makes it real simple to start an online store. Yeah. What they don't tell you is because you go in and within a few hours, you got your logo, you got a couple of products, you've hooked up a shipping, you know, price, and it's all right there for you. But what they don't tell you is when you cancel that store, you have to make sure you actually complete your year end, have access to all the documents yeah. and archive the document. They make archiving the documents difficult. And so then you keep paying, you keep paying, you keep paying for the store to be there. In fact, I have a store because taxes are slow this year for me that it's been closed for 18 months and I still am paying because I've got to wait until I file everything and make sure everything's clean and clear before I missed something and close it down. I'll put it this way to you, Scott. I go three ways and this is where I want to start the foundation of your uh, learning your expertise in in my language work. um, There are two things that you need to fulfill life, business, everything else is, um, I love this is your your willingness to be there and your descriptions of why you're there. Um, and I just thought that we could start this conversation here about that clarity. Why should somebody get into business and how can you do it without cutting corners? So, you know, it's interesting and I like to use examples or anecdotes when I can. Uh, one of the recent businesses I bumped into here north of Boston was a company that makes pierogies. And for your audience that's not familiar with it, pierogies are basically Polish ravioli. And my in-laws yep. are Polish, so it's- We love pierogies here, Yeah, but... so yep. and this guy at a local county fair started a business called the Polish Prince. And in talking to him, he had been in financial services, I think he worked for JP Morgan for 20 years uh, and hated it, hated every minute of it. And then, right before the pandemic, he started making pierogies because he was from a Polish family and he started selling at fairs. And then COVID hit and he started a retail location because he wasn't able to go to fairs as much. And now two to three years later, this guy's killing it. And so to answer your question, I think he's the classic example of the why. And for him, it was a great unhappiness with his chosen career. And I think more moving towards a passion relative to, you know, who he was as an individual, his family, his ancestry, and all of that. And so I think that's one aspect of it, Shane. Um, You know, and that's pierogies. You know, the other ones that I see more recently, and I see on a daily basis, are medical devices, digital health, life sciences. And these people are typically engineers, they're scientists, they're doctors. And they're calling 
is a little more noble. And in their clinical practice or in their training, they typically bump into something and they go, huh, I can do this better. And I can do this better for the benefit of a patient. And I think I can do it to improve outcomes relative to, say, surgery or treatment. And I also think I can do it cheaper. We all know how healthcare costs are driving startups in that industry. So that is another, I think, large motivator that I see on, on a day-to-day basis uh, is thinking you can build that better mousetrap. Well, in an effort to contribute a little bit, I break it down into two different sets of three. There's the logic, there's the emotion. Is your idea relevant, attainable, sustainable, meaning, you know, do people want it? Can you do it? And can you do it day after day? And you do the other half backwards. When are you complete? What are you willing to do? And why are you doing it? Fundamentally important. One of the biggest reasons why we were here, though, was the conversation around Uber and all that stuff. Should you be breaking the rules and cheating to get started when you have an idea or a new business? I I think you have to break the rules relative to the business model in the industry. And then it comes down to the entrepreneur, which is what you're speaking of. I think those things matter, Shane. I think the one thing that despite any best intention or passion and motivation, the rules you can't break are the physical realities. And it sounds so self-evident, but I'm telling you right now, the number of entrepreneurs that I see go, you know, by the wayside or belly up, they just, they don't follow the fiscal rules. And if you can't follow the fiscal rules and you can't budget, you can't do cash flow, no matter how good you are, no matter how passionate you are, you're done, you're cooked. So yeah. Yeah. Have the money. Okay. Well, is that breaking rules or, uh, for the sake of batting the ball around, um, asking for permission versus asking for forgiveness? On the fiscal side? Just in business. I think that if you look at even Uber, I think Uber is one of those ones, right? Where Uber went, they they cut corners, they they bought and sold an awful lot of, you know, lobbying and all those things back when they first started. That was one of the things, examples recently of a business that did everything they could that might have been in the shadows in order to get to a point where they were so big and strong that they already had the leverage. I think that we see that with Spotify. Spotify started in a country where the music rules weren't the same as they were in North America, but then they became so big, they already had the leverage in North America to negotiate the contracts. Yeah, it's a great point. You know, I I do think there is, you know, what's that? There's a very famous saying, you know, if you owe someone a thousand dollars, they have you, but if you owe them a million, you have them because, you know, they only hope they have getting that money back because if you generate enough uh, business so they can pay them back at some point. Anyone can lose a thousand, they can't lose a million. So yeah, I think, you know, you look at a Spotify, yeah, probably a good example. Um, But I think early on for the vast majority of businesses, if they can't follow those fiscal fiscal rules, uh, they have no hope, no hope. Yeah, yeah. How do we learn that stuff though? I mean, Scott, we don't get that. We don't get that. I mean, we could even take this out of the business conversation yep. and talk about our personal budgets at home with inflation being high everywhere. Yep. We don't even have the 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 baseline of the you know income versus expenses, you know, money in, money out. We don't even have the basics of that for our houses. Yeah, I mean, on a personal level, down here in the states, you know, in the wake of this whole debt uh, debate, they're talking about having colleges mandate uh, fiscal literacy. I'm a big fan mm-hmm. of that. Uh, as far as having fiscal literacy in a business. Uh, between you and me, it's not something you can get, you know, fiscal literacy for dummies. You, you do have to take a course. You have to get an accounting or finance professor that can help you understand what it means to run a business and to keep books. Um, yep. It's tough to learn 
in a course unless there's a professor there helping you. Um, I've seen some great ones here at UMass Lowell. I've seen some great ones at UMass Amherst, Bentley. But yeah, I mean, Shane, to your point, most of us don't know how to do our own checking account. So having to do it for business is a lot tougher. But if you, you need to get that training or I'll, ideally, the startups I see, they'll have someone with that kind of background and have them on the team. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've learned that lesson uh, too, in a big way. I learned that lesson. I learned the lesson of giving up too much control, of trusting when someone tries to manipulate the core of the idea, the intention of the idea. Yep. I mean, I've made all of those mistakes. I could write a book on how not to do it. Scott, <laughs> love to be able to write a book on how to do it. Yeah, sure. So what do you get excited about in this, uh, in today's world? I mean, there's all kinds of people listening from all sorts of different walks of life. Um, there are some very simple business ideas. There's the massive disruptors that you talked about. Yep. And then there's the the reinventing the same old thing over and over again, because everybody drop ships and everybody is an affiliate online. So how do we, how do we take these ideas and, and try to turn them into something that works? What gets you excited? Um, I get excited about the entrepreneur to start with. Um, I was, the innovation gets old quick, you know? Um, but I think the perseverance, the dedication, the passion, that's what gets me excited. Talking to those people like Doug at the Polish Prince. Uh, I was just working with uh, a young woman. Her name uh, was Casey Grain. She's with a company called Hoobly. And they were attached to our incubator. And she had a fascinating story. And I worked with her earlier this year. Basically, what she does is she does a cranial drill, not to get morbid for your audience, a cranial drill that goes in to your brain yeah. and releases pressure and gets the patient ready for more invasive surgery. By the way, she's telling it. And when she first started telling me the story, the same drill has been in place since the Civil War. No exaggeration. And so she's come up with a more innovative, more cost effective, more efficient drill. And just to see her out there, it, it's it's amazing. That's what I love. I mean, it's like again, here up in Canada, it'd be like watching someone play hockey and then watching Gretzky play hockey. You know, I, I, that's what gets me excited. You know, the innovation, the industry, the, the ice, the game, it's the same for everyone. But when you watch an entrepreneur that has a certain deft touch for what they have to do to get to market, that's what I get excited about. You know, we have cycles of entrepreneurs and companies that come through our incubator you know, good 20 a year. And, you know, occasionally you get that one or two that's really fun to watch. So uh, that's what I get excited to on a personal level. And then what I get excited about is helping these companies get started because you do get a lot of them that are what I would call delusional. You'll hear the term entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial overconfidence. I call it the better mousetrap mentality. They get so excited about their innovation they lose sight of all the other different things that are required to get to market. Um, so I love to get in, get in front of these folks, talk to them, help them, look at their business plans, and, and really try to be positive in their journey as entrepreneurs. So, Access to market is always the biggest one. Yep. Seems to be, right? Like you got to have the good salespeople that understand it, that believe in it, or you've got to have the great website or, or your, your pierogi friends got the shop in the right place. The one thing you can't renovate is location, yep. right? You can make your shop look amazing, but if you're in a dumpy neighborhood and no one goes there, well, that doesn't help. Yep. So um, how, how do you create that access to market? I mean, getting, surrounding yourself with amazing people. Yep. It seems to be really the key. I mean, to take it off of the, all of the numbers of the accounting part, the irony 
that I'm hearing is that we need to actually secure the numbers. And by the way, you've got to find the best human beings you can yeah. and keep them. I think the access to market one, and again, I'll bring it back to some of my classroom teaching chain. Every semester, we'll pick an industry and we'll look at the industry, the dynamics, uh, the, the value proposition, the startups there. So last semester, we did ghost kitchens. And oh, amazing. You know, Love this. these ghost kitchens, a year ago, this is the great thing about being a professor. A year ago, when I was reading the journal, the Financial Times, and I was reading about ghost kitchens, it was a great article in the New Yorker. I, I was beyond skeptical. I don't know what the adjective is to describe me, but I just wasn't buying it. And then the more I dug into it and looked at companies like Reef, uh, Impossible Foods is starting a ghost kitchen. It goes directly to what you just stated. They're trying to get market access. It, all the great locations are all gone, at least they're in the Boston area. Every great corner for every great restaurant is either taken by a great restaurant or a Dunkin' Donuts. Up there, it's <laughs> probably taken by a Tim Hortons. So Tim Hortons, yeah. yeah. So how do you get access to market? I don't know. You buy an old warehouse for pennies on the dollar, throw in an oven, throw in a fridge, throw in a deep freeze freezer, hire a chef for 150 grand a year, and you do Mexican, you do Italian, you do Chinese, and then you label it on the web, and you get a truck and the truck goes right out to the customer. That's how you get with market access. There's something to it. I'm now a fan of the business model, like any other new business model, any new disruption, it's gonna be a lot of pain. A lot of companies aren't gonna make it, but that's how you get access to market. And that's a concrete example that I would offer you. So. That seems fascinating to me. I mean, the donut shops, you said Dunkin' Donuts. Most of those donuts, at least here for the, the Tim's and stuff, they're all getting cooked at a central location anyway. Then they're getting dropped off, right? I mean. That's fascinating to me. And that's sort of just finding efficiency and really old ideas, isn't it? It really is. I mean, it really, it's a capacity play to your point. I have a machine that has capacity. I have a truck that has capacity. How do I fill the capacity? And I don't want to get too all economics on you, but if you look at most businesses, it really is the fixed costs. How do we just cover our fixed costs and you mm -hmm. use excess capacity? Um, so yeah, I agree with you. I mean, the Hortons and Dunkin' Donuts, you know, I saw one down in New York City this past weekend and it was a new business startup to, to our conversation called the Donuttery. The Donuttery, they make donuts and they make mini donuts. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, how is this place going to work? And so I got home after being down in New York City for the weekend and I looked at their website and what their business model is and they're a franchise. You know, it's a, you know, I don't have a lot to offer as far as expert advice. I really don't. Franchise models make me very, very nervous. You know, I would tell your audience <laughs> that, you know, because whenever I see a franchise model, I see a suspect business model. And so selling small donuts and paying, you know, whatever they're asking for the franchise fee and then having you buy all the supporting equipment and advertising and marketing through them. I don't know. I mean, Dunkin' Donuts has pulled it off. I'm sure if it is Tim Hortons up there, they pulled it off, too. But you know, the donutteries, the crumbles of the world, these big cookies, you know, as, as many as I see good businesses, I see bad ones that will have like a five-year run and then whoever's on the back end of that five years gets screwed, you know, you feel yeah. bad. Well, as the, as, the, uh, as the lease escalates over time yeah. um, and all those things, which is funny actually, Scott, because what we've done here inadvertently is we've actually come full circle to, it's really easy to get into business when you can drop $100,000 on a franchise, yeah. but it's hard to get out of business. We've actually <laughs> gone full circle. Oh, in this, 
in this conversation, yeah. right? Like, oh, that's so funny. This is fascinating. You know, Scott, I would love to have you back and yeah. and sort of cherry pick a, a couple of specific industries because I, I I can I can hear the emails arriving in my email box sure. uh, as as we play this. Is that the but what can I get started with? What what is what can I get started with? And that's the hard part is that you have to like do the you have to make the mistakes and scrape your knees and and learn the things and yeah. and so I would love to be able to bat around some ideas for people of not necessarily hey by the way sell lemonade you'll be a millionaire sure I, we don't need to do that but um you know well what what are you working on what's your thing I would like to bat that ball around for people yeah. because I think in today's world they need a little inspiration yeah listen you know I I, I won't. I'm not going to push it and it's on the web on Amazon. I have a book called mastering strategy and that's kind of chapter four. And we say a tongue in cheek and down here, you know, we're just getting through labor day and the snow is right around the corner as I'm sure it is for you as well. But every cookout this summer, Hey, what do you do? I'm an accountant. What do you do? I'm a business professor. Oh, what do you, and inevitably, Hey, I'm thinking about starting a business. Everyone asks that. And that's like the basis mm -hmm. for chapter four. I'm always happy to kick it around. Um, I think the value someone like I offer is, I don't mean to say I'm jaded, but I hope to be a sober voice of reason because to your point, so many folks, they invest their life savings. They invest families' life savings and some seed funding. And then when it doesn't go away and, and all the passion is burnt up, yeah, I, it's horrible. It's a horrible thing. That's one of the things I try to teach in my class. You know, any pizza shop that you see shut down in the area, someone, that, no one wakes up and says, I'm going to start a pizza shop because I have nothing to do today. They start mm -hmm. a pizza shop because they think, to your point, they can make a good pizza. They think they can make a living for their family, maybe pass it on to their children. And so when, when a business goes belly up, it's an incredibly, for those people, incredibly tragic occurrence. And for me as a business school professor, I, I feel bad for those folks. So, yes, I'm always happy to, you know, you know offer any advice I can. And hopefully it just provides a, a basis of reality. I am happy to sell your book. Excuse the irony of yeah. uh, the the business guy who doesn't want to promote his book, but I'll do it for you. <laughs> um, the uh, mastering strategy workshops for business success. Yes, that's it. Um, th that's the uh, the link is going to be on shiftheads.ca on our Facebook group for everybody who wants to learn more about it. There is a Kindle edition, which is super handy to yeah. save you a few bucks. And um, and yeah, we'll do it. Let's inspire some people together, Scott. What do you say? Yeah, just have Ryan reach out to me. Uh, this has been a great half hour. I'm all, I love these types of conversations. So if I can add value to your audience, happy to be with you. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.